in many ways, the majority of our Christmas traditions. If you look around Christmas, the Christmas season, many of our Christmas traditions, I don't know if you've noticed, but they're characterized by, by like one similarity, an unapologetic desire to claim what is impossible as truth. Have you noticed that about Christmas? We, we set up impossible claims, but we present them as being true. Santa Claus, a diabetic fat man with an incredible appetite for milk and cookies who lives with his wife year-round at the North Pole. <laughs> it's kind of an impossible claim. I googled it just out of curiosity, and the average winter temperature in the North Pole ranges anywhere between negative 45 and negative 15 degrees Fahrenheit. That's pretty cold. An impossible claim presented as true. One elven workshop that manufactures all the toys for the world's children being buried beneath the same frozen tundra, that's also an impossible claim. Everyone knows that elves live in the Middle Earth outpost known as Rivendell. Yeah, that was a Lord of the Rings joke. Good old St. Nicholas, possessing omniscient knowledge of who's been naughty and nice, and then custom tailoring rewards based upon that judgment, that's an impossible claim. The sad reality is that only Google and Facebook have that type of intrusion into our lives. One man flawlessly distributing gifts in one night for all of the 7 billion of the world's residents, that's an impossible claim. It's impossible today, give, give Amazon about two years and they'll figure out a way to do it. Mistletoe, providing this supernatural force field by which a woman will surrender all willpower and be magically compelled to kiss a man regardless of looks or breath is an impossible claim. Reports are that Al Franken had mistletoe all over his office and it didn't work. It was low-hanging fruit. I apologize. I could go on and on. On and on. Yeah, it was an Al Franken joke. Cut me some slack. Impossible claims during the Christmas season presented as truth. It's all over the place. And yet, you know, there really is one that kind of takes the cake. And that's the notion that little over 2,000 years ago, in a little town of Bethlehem, a young girl named Mary, who had supernaturally conceived of the Holy Spirit, actually bore the Son of God. On the surface, it's, it's an impossible claim that we present as truth. R.C. Sproul observed, quote, what we celebrate at Christmas is not so much the birth of a baby, but the incarnation of God himself. And yet, as impossible a claim as the virgin birth of Jesus might appear to be on the surface, the fact is, is that Christians, Christianity, we not only believe the impossible became a reality, but we've established that singular truth as the foundation of our Christian faith that the virgin conceived. Famed author C.S. Lewis called the incarnation the central miracle asserted by Christians. Think about it. The miracle of the resurrection is only possible with the miracle of the incarnation. As it pertains to the virgin birth being this foundational truth, one author commented, without the incarnation, Christianity isn't even a good story. And most sadly, it means nothing. Some people seemingly overlook 
this reality. For example, in his first book, Velvet Elvis, and before most had come to see this man as kind of the heretic that he is, an author named Rob Bell, he called into question the virgin birth in Velvet Elvis's book. And he actually goes so far as to imply that the incarnation is not even that important as an essential biblical doctrine. This is what he writes. Quote, what if tomorrow someone digs up definitive proof that Jesus had a real earthly biological father named Larry? An archaeologist find Larry's tomb and do DNA samples and prove beyond a shadow of a doubt the virgin birth was really just a bit of mythology the gospel writers threw in. What if, as you study the origin of the word virgin, you discover that the word virgin and the gospel of Matthew actually comes from the book of Isaiah, and then you find out that in the Hebrew language, the word virgin could mean several things. He writes, could a person still love God? Could you still be a Christian? Is the way of Jesus still the best possible way to live, or does the whole thing fall apart? Now, right from the beginning of our study, I need you to know, if the virgin birth did not happen, if Jesus is a human being no different fundamentally than you or I, then it absolutely does have major ramifications. The truth be told is you could call the fight, you could close up shop, we could all move on to something else. G. Campbell Morgan sums it up this way. If Christ is only man, then I'm an idolater. If he is very God, then the man who denies it is a blasphemer. There can be no union between those who hold his deity and those who deny it. In examining the doctrine of the incarnation, what Christmas centers so much of our religious beliefs around, and in light of the obvious skepticism, I'm going to take a threefold approach to this particular doctrine. First, I want to take a few minutes and analyze what the Bible actually claims concerning the incarnation. Then I want to examine the historical validity of the virgin birth before ultimately concluding our time together explaining why the incarnation is so significant. So to begin with, what does the Bible claim happened some 2,000 years ago? For starters, the Bible clearly states that Jesus was born to a virgin mother named Mary. Let's, let's kind of kick things off by reading the backstory to Christmas. It's actually provided by two of the gospel writers, both Luke and Matthew. If you turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, we'll read a few verses beginning with verse 26, and then we'll flip to Matthew chapter 1 verse 18. Once again, if you're using the C316.tv application, it's all built in and you can just follow along. Luke chapter 1 verse 26. Luke writes, Now in the sixth month... The angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and considered what manner of greeting this was. 
Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be? Since I do not know a man. And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now flip to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Matthew then tells us that the birth of Jesus Christ is as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done, Matthew writes, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, and then Matthew quotes Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded, took to him his wife, did not know her, she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. It's undeniable. From a literal, simplified reading of the historical text provided to us by both Luke and Matthew, that while betrothed to be married to Joseph, Mary was a virgin. Within the verses we just read, on three separate occasions... Mary is described by the gospel authors as being a virgin who's had no sexual interactions with any man, yet alone her betrothed husband, Joseph. She's a virgin. She's never had sex before. Furthermore, in response to the news that she would become pregnant, what's Mary's response? Mary's response actually affirms her innocence. She asks the angel, how can this be? Following it up with what logic? Since I don't know a man. Like, how am, I, how am I pregnant if I haven't done the deed? And then following the angelic pronouncement, even Joseph finds it essential to do what? To maintain Mary's virginity. Matthew's clear he did not know her until the time was completed. Aside from this text stating that Mary would be a virgin, that she was a virgin. The text also makes it clear that Mary's pregnancy, because she's a virgin, would therefore be logically of a supernatural origin. This is what the text tells us. In Luke's account, the angel Gabriel tells her what? That the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. You're trying to figure out how you're going to be pregnant 
without having sex and you're in the first century? That's a logical question. The answer from Luke, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest will overshadow you. And then in Matthew's account, the angel tells Joseph what? For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Now, though we aren't given the specifics of how exactly this this happened, of how she was able to conceive in such a way, this is all the detail we're given. Neither author delves into the, the intricacies of it. But these passages do affirm that in some way, the supernatural God of the universe fertilized an egg within Mary to form a living embryo. That human DNA was fused together with the divine to produce a unique genetic code. How that happened, I have no idea. But the text tells us it did. Finally, as a result of both of these things, Mary's virginity, coupled with their, the child's supernatural conception, the Bible then claims very clearly that Mary's son, who was to be named Jesus, would be God. Luke writes that Jesus will be called the son of the highest. Not the son of Joseph, the son of the highest. That he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Therefore that holy one who is to be born will be called the son of God. And then Matthew adds that Jesus will save his people from their sins. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And note this phrase, Son of God. It's an interesting phrase. Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. The phrase Son of God, in the ancient cultural context, it doesn't mean that Jesus was God's son, God's child, God's kid. In the ancient language, the phrase Son of is used to describe the nature of the individual. To be the Son of means that you're of the same nature as. So to be the Son of God is to imply that Jesus is of the same nature of God. It's another way of just saying that Jesus is God. Sadly, though our text seems to leave little doubt, there are those, like Rob Bell, who try to dismiss the divinity of Jesus by claiming that the Bible never actually states Mary was a virgin, like a plain reading would imply. And to do this, the skeptics point to what they perceive to be a discrepancy in Matthew's quoting of Isaiah chapter 7. This is the argument. The argument is that when Isaiah writes, Behold, a virgin shall be with child. The virgin. He uses the Hebrew word Alma, which, while it can mean virgin, virgin is often more frequently translated as simply young maiden. The claim is that Isaiah was describing Mary not necessarily as a virgin, but as simply a young woman. And then in order to strengthen the argument, these skeptics claim that if Isaiah had intended to say that Mary was a virgin, he wouldn't have used the Hebrew word Alma, but would have used a different Hebrew word, Bethula. Now tragically, these naysayers overlook a couple of very key details, built within their own argument actually. Though Alma can mean young maiden. And that's true. It's very difficult to claim that Alma refers to a young maiden who wasn't a virgin. The truth is not, not once 
do we find the word Alma being used in the Hebrew Old Testament to refer to a married woman? The cultural assumption in using the word Alma to write that she's a young maiden was to imply that she's also a young maiden who's a virgin. Aside from this, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's known as the Septuagint. The the Jewish translators, they translate Alma in Isaiah 7 using the word Parthenos. What makes that interesting is that the word Parthenos can only mean virgin. What what this implies is that Jewish, non-Christian translators of the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek and transcribing what Isaiah the prophet wrote years before the advent, they believed the prophet was predicting the virgin conception and birth of the Messiah. Now, it should also be pointed out that when Luke... Like, that only addresses Matthew, right? Matthew's quotation of Isaiah. Luke, who was writing in Greek, when he twice describes Mary as a virgin in Luke 1, verse 27, you want to take a guess at what Greek word he uses? He uses the word parthenos twice to describe Mary as a virgin. While Matthew implies Mary was a virgin in his quoting of Isaiah, Dr. Luke, his statement is unquestionable. Now, beyond the fact that Matthew and Luke believed Mary was a virgin when she conceived a child, central New Testament doctrines demand this reality. Like, supporting the notion that if the virgin birth didn't happen, we should close up shop and move on, it's a truth. Without the, the, the virgin birth, New Testament doctrine has no basis, no foundation. You see, theologically... The doctrinal position known as the virgin birth of Jesus, we call it the incarnation. And we do that for a very specific reason. The word incarnation, it literally means to become flesh. Carne asada, carne, flesh, to become flesh. That's what the word incarnation means. It means, doctrinally speaking, that Jesus, who had always existed as the second person of the Holy Trinity, added to his deity flesh. He took on flesh, the incarnation, when he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. It's a central idea. And it's affirmed in other places. John opens his gospel. John 1, verses 1 through 14. We won't read it all, but let me read you the beginning and then get to verse 14. John opens his gospel saying, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. And then at the end of, his, of this, this intro statement, he says, and this word became flesh, incarnation, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. If you refer back to a section of Philippians we've already studied, Philippians 2, verses 5 and 8, what does Paul say? Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. How? Taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Because the Bible argues the incarnation was the only way in which God could save mankind from sin, which we'll get to in a minute. 
the New Testament authors, they substantiate the biblical claim of the virgin birth as being a fact. And not just a fact, but essential to all Christian doctrine. Here's my point. Asserting the Bible does not present the virgin birth of Christ as a literal historical event. Or, for that matter, asserting that the incarnation of Jesus isn't important is simply ignorant, dishonest, and disingenuous to the text itself. Though I give you credit, you can absolutely doubt the biblical claim of a virgin conceiving. That's fair. This is what you cannot do. You cannot doubt that the Bible makes the claim a virgin indeed conceived. The Bible, crystal clear. Mary was a virgin betrothed to Joseph. Her pregnancy was therefore of a supernatural origin, and her son Jesus was both fully God and fully man. Honestly, the reason that some people reject the incarnation, if we're to be frank, is that it really boils down to the fact that they reject the supernatural in general. Like in order to make scripture more friendly to the scientific mind, liberal scholars within Christianity, they often attempt to rationalize the miraculous by proposing natural explanations. And yet, aside from the reality, the Bible makes zero sense without the miraculous. It, it, it's, it's not a book I'd care to follow or read without the miraculous. Such a position is not even logical. Let me just simply state it this way. If there is a supernatural God who can act, then it is completely logical and rational to conclude there can be a supernatural act of God. Now, though the biblical argument for the incarnation. It's convincing. The Bible says it. You should also note, though, that there is a strong historical case for the virgin birth being a fact of history. Let's say you don't want to take the biblical claim. Look at history. Now, I, I do need to give you a little tool that scholars use. Like when trying to figure out the veracity of a historical event, whether it be the virgin birth or, for that matter, the conquest of Alexander the Great, historians ask two fundamental questions when trying to figure out if something actually happened in the past. First, they ask, are there any ancient manuscripts that document the claim? And then the second question is they ask, how quickly was the event accepted by society as factual history? How close do you have documentation? And how soon was it accepted as a fact? This is how we, we wade through most of history. The more documentation, the closer the authors were to the event themselves, the less time there could be, obviously, for embellishment. Now, in regards to the historical validity of the virgin birth, the amount of reliable ancient manuscripts documenting this claim as a, as a fact of history, it's astounding. I encourage you to, to study that on your own. Aside from the fact, that both Matthew and Luke, they were both educated men. And they were both meticulous historians. Not to mention they both wrote their biographies of Jesus' life to withstand the scrutiny of a skeptical world about 30 years after the fact. But this is what's important to note. 
Beginning with the first generation of Christians, the church has universally accepted the incarnation as a historical reality. Most amazingly, while the incarnation was never presented in Scripture as to be a time of celebration, the event is affirmed repeatedly. I'll give you just a few quick examples. The Apostles' Creed, which was thought to be a summary of the Apostles' teaching during the first century. It states that Jesus, quote, was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. The Nicene Creed, written in 325 A.D., states, quote, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. The Westminster Confession, written in 1647 A.D., states that Jesus was, quote, conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost and the womb of the Virgin Mary. And note, this is just a couple of examples throughout church history of the church affirming the virgin birth. Ignatius, writing at the tail end of the first century, a protege of John, the apostle John, he writes, and God the word was truly born of the virgin, having clothed himself with a body of like passions with our own. He who forms all men in the womb was himself really in the womb and made for himself a body of the seed of the virgin, but without any intercourse of man. Justin Martyr, another first century uh, Christian writer, he says, quote, But now in the times of your reign, having, as we've said before, become man by a virgin, according to the counsel of the Father for the salvation of those who believe in him. That's just a taste of non-biblical authors affirming a reality very soon after the event itself. Now to this point, there are some, once again like Rob Bell, who have argued that the incarnation, this idea of the virgin conceiving, it was introduced years later. It was introduced to the gospel narrative in order to add more mystique around the legend of Jesus, in order to make him more appealing to Greek and Roman cults who already accepted the idea of a virgin birth in their own mythology. And yet, these so-called scholars overlook three glaring issues. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I just want to give you three quick bullet points. First, because the persons, places, and events of Christ's birth are so precise and historically substantiated, they don't show any of the standard literary marks of the mythological genre. Two, since the Greeks and Romans were fundamentally polytheistic, multiple gods, no mythology even remotely corresponds to the literal incarnation of a monotheistic God. Basically, aside from being poor mythology, there's no precedent that exists for this type of correlation. And thirdly, the stories of Greek and Roman gods becoming, becoming human via miraculous events like a virgin birth. Do you realize most of our earliest documents of Greek and Roman mythology we, we don't have any basis of them existing before the time of Christ. They actually all post-date the time of Jesus. One scholar I read, this is what he wrote. If there is any influence between the two, Christianity and Greek and Roman mythology, it is Christianity influencing mythology and not the reverse. Aside from the fact that the Bible is clear, the virgin conceived to deny the virgin birth as a fact of history, if you're going to deny the virgin birth, 
saying there's not enough historical evidence that it happened. You have to deny just about everything you know about antiquity. That's the truth. Apologist, not that he apologizes for things, but he's a defender of the faith, really the grandfather of a Christian apologetics, a man by the name of Norman Geisler. He put it this way. There are more eyewitness contemporary records of the virgin birth than for most events from the ancient world. Thus, there is no reason to believe that Jesus was not literally born of a virgin just as the Bible claims he was. In other words, if you question the historical nature of the virgin birth, you might as well go ahead and question every single claim you were ever taught in your history classes. Now in closing, my point this morning is twofold. First, this theological position we call the incarnation, that the Virgin Mary conceived and bore Jesus, while admittedly incredible and on the surface even impossible, this claim is not only undeniably biblical, but is substantiated historically. In a season full of impossible claims that aren't true, the virgin birth of Jesus stands apart. But there's a second reason that I want to look at the doctrine of the incarnation. Aside from equipping you with some tools so that you can defend the position, more than proving that the incarnation actually happened, the larger reason, the larger reason for our time together is that, and this is kind of the third point, I want to explain to you why the incarnation is so significant. Not just to your Christian faith, but to your Christian life. Here's my point. It would be a waste of time for me to explain to you why an event is significant and important to your life if you don't believe the event happened. So we got to address the fact that you can believe the event happened before we now address why all of that's important. In writing in his book, Mere Christianity. Once again, C.S. Lewis summed up what occurred on Christmas Day this way. He wrote, quote, The Son of God became man to enable men to become the sons of God. In a nutshell, that's why the incarnation is significant. Now, let me give you, and we'll break it down with two fundamental reasons. First, the incarnation, it's important, significant, it's essential. Here's why. First, it establishes Jesus as being the Son of God. Without the virgin birth, without the incarnation, you can't claim that Jesus was God. Once again, quoting the prophet Isaiah, some 600 years beforehand, Matthew writes, The virgin shall be with child and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, translated God with us. The second reason that the incarnation is, is significant, aside from it establishing Jesus as being God, is that it then presents Jesus as a perfect sacrifice by which permanent atonement could be offered for, yes, the sins of the world, but more specifically, your sin and mine. <laughs> Once again, and Mary will bring forth a son. You shall call his name Jesus. Here's why. For he'll do what? He will save his people from their sins. Please understand this all-encompassing reality. 
if Jesus had not been born of a virgin, and instead Jesus was, was the bastard child of some unknown man that Mary successfully concealed from Joseph and everyone, a man named Larry, then we would be able to say with absolute certainty two things. One, Jesus' claim to be God was bogus. And two, his promise to save humanity from their sins, tragically inaccurate. Though Jesus, in such a dynamic, could still have been a great moral teacher, Jesus could have still remained an example we should have lived by or emulate. But without the incarnation, the fact would remain that Jesus was a normal man, a normal sinner, unable to save even himself from the wages of sin, yet alone atone for the sins of the world. That said, if the incarnation is true, this is what it does. It establishes Jesus' divinity, making then his life on earth the supernatural intervention of a loving God seeking to save mankind from their sin. Do you understand that? Since Adam sinned in the garden, thereby falling short of God's perfect and holy standard, mankind has really only been left with one of two options to remedy sin. One, he can atone for sin himself, or he could provide a sacrificial substitute to atone for sin on his behalf. We see this precedent established as as early as Genesis chapter 4 with Cain and Abel. Sadly, though, the limitations of both options are stark. On one end, because of man's continual sinful nature, the fact that you're really good at sinning. Have you ever noticed that sinning comes naturally? I wonder why. Do you find that it's, it's much easier to do the wrong thing than the right thing? I know I do. Maybe I'm the weird one here. But like, I'm really good at doing the wrong thing. It takes a lot of work to do the right one. Right? And why is that? Because I'm born into sin. I have a continual sin nature. Which means then that a sacrificial substitute offered to atone for sin, at best it can only provide a temporary reprieve or a temporary atonement. Why? Because I offer the sacrifice and then I leave and do what? Sin again. Meaning at some point I got to do what? Come back and offer another sacrifice and another sacrifice. You see, such sacrifices were never designed to yield a permanent solution for sin. This is why the law of Moses required, it demanded sacrifices constantly, over and over and over and over again. Not just to illustrate the fact that you consistently need atonement, but to foreshadow a permanent atoner, that being Jesus. (laughs) It's why we have the Day of Atonement. Aside from this, since an imperfect man would have to spend an eternity paying off a perfect debt, permanent atonement, and what I mean by atonement is the complete satisfying of one's debt before God. It's always proven unattainable. Let me just state that again. Kind of make your heads pop for a minute. 
since an imperfect man would have to spend an eternity paying off a perfect debt, permanent atonement has always been unattainable. Do you know that that's why hell is an eternal punishment? You see, it'll take an eternity for an imperfect offering to completely pay for a perfect ongoing debt. Like, why is hell forever? Because I need forever to try to pay it off because I'm flawed, I'm, I'm imperfect. How can I ever be good enough to satisfy something that demands perfection? You see, logically speaking, the Bible has always claimed, it's always claimed that if you want to deal with sin, that it would take a perfect man to ultimately satisfy this perfect debt required of man. You see, only a sinless man, born apart from Adam, the first sinless man, would be able to permanently atone for man's sin as a sacrificial substitute. Now, if if you want to get more into the the theology of this, (laughs) read Romans chapter 5. Like Paul lays out this entire argument. Aside from that, this is why in Genesis 3, verse 15, God said to Satan, right from the beginning, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her, capital S, seed, he, once again capitalized, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. I'm not going to bore you with full expose of the passage. This is the first reference, not just of the Messiah, but of a virgin conceiving her seed. She's don't have seed. You you follow that? Follow why that's weird? The incarnation of Jesus. God becoming man. It is absolutely, fundamentally essential to the Christian doctrine of salvation. Because this is what it does. It presents a third option for how you can deal with sin. You can try to atone for sin yourself and spend eternity doing it in hell. You can can try to have a a temporary offering, but that's inadequate because you keep sinning. The third option that the incarnation presents for us is that for the first time since the creation of Adam in the garden, in that mangy manger out in the countryside of Bethlehem, for the first time since the garden, Rested in swaddling clothes, the second sinless man, Jesus the Christ. That's the third option. See, as God, Jesus is without sin. As man, Jesus could effectively represent humanity. The incarnation, Jesus being both fully God and fully man, produced the perfect conditions for this for a permanent sacrifice to permanently atone for the sins of the world. Above and beyond every other meaning that you can draw from Christmas, and there are many, the birth of Jesus is significant for this simple reason. And laying aside the glory of heaven as God, By coming to this rotten planet as a babe, completely and utterly vulnerable, Jesus came with a mission that he was able to fulfill. And what mission? 
It was to save his people from their sins. Jesus didn't come to earth for himself. Jesus came to accomplish a work that you and I could never do. That for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So that through his life and his sacrificial death, it would then be possible that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Let me bring it home. This morning, there are only three options you have to atone for your sin. You can reject God's gift of salvation and therefore spend eternity in hell seeking to pay off a debt you'll never be able to. People will say that's not very, very seeker-friendly, Zach. That's the most friendly thing I got for you because it's, it's the truth. And I care enough to say it. You can reject God's gift of salvation. And instead, you can spend your religious life doing all types of sacrificial things for God. You can offer all kinds of sacrifices, inadequate sacrifices. Trying to earn points with the big man upstairs, you can give money to the poor. You can try to live a moral life. You can seek to take take care of those less fortunate. Do you know all the while you'll overlook the reality that the wages of sin isn't all the good things you can do for God? The one thing that sin requires is death. Meaning none of those good things, those temporary sacrifices, those offerings, none of those things will work. None of them will suffice when it comes to salvation. Or, for there is a third option. A third option made possible only by the incarnation. A third option only made possible by what we take this this season to recognize. And yeah, if you want to go down that road, I understand. Jesus was not born on December 25th. Pope Julius I arbitrarily did it to reconcile pagan practices with Christian traditions. And who cares? It's still a date, and it's still an opportunity to recognize this third option. That God, that God came to earth in order to offer himself as the perfect sacrifice for your sin. That God, and the person of Jesus, came as a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, knowing that his death, which would come, would once and for all finally provide a permanent atonement for every one of your sins. Friend, it's true, Christmas, a Christmas season filled with Santa, gingerbread men, Rudolph, Frosty, lights and decorations, a Trans-Siberian Orchestra playlist, presents under the tree, eggnog, eggnog with fireball, the Christmas movie Elf, which is a favorite. All those things can provide a Christmas that's fun. That's true. 
But a Christmas without knowing Jesus will never be significant. There are lots of things to make Christmas fun for you and your family, but only one thing that makes it significant, and that's knowing Jesus. This morning, before you find yourself getting swept up in the hustle and the bustle of the season, before your time and your attention becomes consumed with family trips and Christmas parties, I want you to take just a minute this morning and consider the real reason for the season. Jesus loved you enough to join your plight because he knew it was the only way that you could be saved. There are many reasons to celebrate Christmas. But the, the most important is the fact that without Jesus in a manger, there could never have been Jesus on a cross. Without the stable, there could have never been Calvary. It's what it affords us. In 1739, Charles Wesley wrote a hymn for Christmas Day. And this hymn perfectly articulated not only the amazing nature of the incarnation. But the hymn, it communicated what the doctrine enabled by Jesus intended to accomplish. Now, ironically, about 30 years later, Wesley's hymn for Christmas Day was trimmed down. It was edited, condensed, rebranded by George Whitfield. Today it's known as Hark the Herald Angels Sing. This morning, we're not going to close with doxology. But what I would like to close with is a reading of this original hymn written, not condensed by Whitfield, but written by Wesley. I want you to listen to, to the original version, what comes from Wesley's pen. Hark, how all the welkin rings, glory to the King of Kings. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies. Universal nature say, Christ the Lord is born today. Christ, by highest heaven adorned, Christ, the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to appear, Jesus our Emmanuel here. Hail the heavenly Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Come, desire of nations, come, fix in us thy humble home. Rise, the woman's conquering seed, bruise in us the serpent's head. Now display thy saving power, Ruin nature, now restore. Now in mystic union join 
thine to ours and ours to thine. Adam's likeness, Lord face, stamp thy image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. And then he closes. Let us thee, though lost, regain. Thee the life, the inner man. O to all thyself impart, formed in each believing heart. And so, Father, Lord, we ask,